Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I recently spoke with Hannah Rochelle about her book, Hide and Seek, Camouflage, Photography, and the Media of Reconnaissance. This is a wonderful book. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to read. It's written in an extraordinarily lyrical style, and every page of the book is very much marked with Shell's own very vibrant practice and concerns as an artist, as well as um, as a historian of science. It's a book that looks at the discourse of and material practices of strategic concealment from 19th, 20th century into the 21st century, but it really ranges all the way potentially into the future once you get to the end of the book. It's full of fascinating characters. I couldn't put it down when I was reading through it. I highly recommend it, and it was uh, great fun to talk with Hannah about it. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, Hannah. Hi there. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Hannah Schell about her book, Hide and Seek, Camouflage, Photography, and the Media of Reconnaissance, and that just came out with Zone Books in 2012. Now, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read this, it's a fascinating book. It's one of the most elegantly and eloquently and movingly written books in the history of science, or really in any field of history that I've read in a long time. It's beautiful, and um, congratulations. It's wonderful, wonderful work. Oh, thank you so much. It's really nice to hear that. Oh, well. So, Hannah, could you start us off a little bit by saying a little bit about what brought you to this field? How did you come to the history of science, and what's your background in this? Um, well, you know, I think actually in, in sort of thinking about this this interview a little bit, it actually got me thinking a lot more than I had in a while about exactly that question in the sense of, you know, not only how did I get into this this topic or this idea of camouflage, um, but more like how I got into the set of issues that it emerged from um, and even how I got interested in the history of science um, as a field. So I guess I would say that actually my inspiration for this particular project actually dates in an odd way um, all the way back to being like a, a teenager. Um, I, I remember being about kind of, uh, I guess, 15 or 16, um, and I actually had the opportunity to intern with a photographer named Rosamond Purcell, who was uh, a photographer who worked a lot on natural history specimens um, and who'd been a sort of a close collaborator with the late Stephen Jay Gould um, on sort of combining the history of science, which Gould was obviously writing a lot about, with the sort of visual representation of artifacts of the history of science, fossils, taxidermy specimens. Um, and so I had this wonderful opportunity when I was in high school to intern with her. And uh, it was it was really great. It was one of the highlights of, of high school, for, to be sure. Uh, and I, I traveled with her to Leiden in Holland and worked with her as a photo and lighting assistant uh, and actually a carry the luggage assistant <laughs> um, on a book called Swift as a Shadow, which was a photo documentation book about specimens of extinct species that were represented in the Leiden Natural History Museum. Um, 
And I think that got me really interested or got me thinking a lot, not only about the history of natural history, which in turn is what brought me to camouflage, um, but also about the relationship between looking at scientific representations or looking at natural forms and a kind of philosophical inquiry into what it meant to look at those forms. Um, and, uh, and I suppose actually as I, as I began working with her, um, you know, my pre-existing interest in photography, uh, which is how I'd ended up interning for her to begin with, uh, combined with my getting more interested in reading Stephen Jay Gould's work, uh, and then, my own sort of high school photography work ended up becoming also about natural history. I mean, or it was very much inspired by, by the work that I had seen, uh, seen in this kind of Rosamond Stephen Jay Gould collaboration. Um, and I think actually when I, when I got to college and sort of was facing that typical, like, Oh my gosh, I'm in college. I have to choose a major. Why am I in college? What am I interested in anyway? Why do people say I have to study something useful? Uh, should I study something useful? Uh, I, I must have had this somewhere in my mind because my first semester I ended up enrolled on the one hand in a like advanced photography class, but on the other hand in this like advanced graduate seminar in biological and botanical systematics. And it was like a history. It was for evolutionary biology students mostly sort of advanced botanist postdocs, uh, looking at the history of botanical systematics, and it was taught by a botanist in the botany and biology department. Uh, it was actually, I was a little bit of fish out of water because, of course, it, I was a first-semester freshman who didn't really know much about plants. Um, and, you know, we learned about, like, 17th century and 18th century French classification systems and Somehow I found it really fascinating and read all of these kind of, in retrospect, very dull uh, books that were not, you know, well, they were written by, they were books written by scientists that weren't exactly the most engaging histories of science. But anyway, I just, I really connected with that and ended up doing a lot of photography projects, more about natural history. Um, and what I, what I got really interested in, I think, and again, this is really reflecting from the position of having written this book and now being a historian of science mm -hmm. is not so much like the forms themselves, like uh, taxidermy specimens, botanical specimens, but in a way like thinking about the way people looked at those specimens. Like why were they stuffing animals? Why were they studying their surfaces? Why? What did they feel when they were looking at them? Um, and then... I ended up a history of science major, lo and behold, um, and, you know, doing a series of photo projects about looking at natural history specimens, um, writing a thesis about the history of taxidermy, and um, I think kind of wanting to become a natural history museum curator in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess I'd say that's kind of when I became a historian of science, kind of like in the sense of... I think I imagine myself in a natural history museum looking at a diorama in this kind of state of reverie and trying to understand what that state meant and, like, where it came from. Um, so I think it was kind of an artistic sensibility that somehow ended up in the sort of guise of historical inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, no, sorry, yeah, go on. No, no, go on. Go on. <laughs> so anyway, I was just, just a kind of... Um, I guess then there's the question of how that led to this book about camouflage. Right. Because perhaps, perhaps, uh, 
perhaps what I've, what I've already said doesn't clearly lend to a study of technologies of warfare and uh, uniform design. But of course it does. <laughs> so how did you find your way to that topic? I mean, anyone or anyone who has seen the book, and um, I'll say this for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, and they should read the book because it's wonderful. It, it seems to be such a perfect topic for bringing together um, visual materials, film, um, an interest in multimedia um, installation um, with history of science and with history of art. So how did you find this perfect, seemingly, at least from the perspective of a reader of your work, really perfect topic for someone with the interest that you, and the background that you just described? Well, um, what happened was, I mean, there actually was like a flash when I discovered this topic, right? It, literally this moment when I'd been sort of struggling a little bit to find a dissertation topic that both like fit with what I knew, what people expected of me, my background, and wasn't didn't sort of feel like old hat. Mm-hmm. And there had been this kind of moment of clarity, like a lightning bolt kind of cheesy feeling. I think what, what what occurred and how, I mean, the project sort of emerges from, on the one hand, my ongoing interest, interest I would say, in skins, in different kinds of skins, and the way in which both the construction of skins and the representation of animal skins um, and the kind of embodiment of those skins, how that connects in a way to, to human beings' understanding of their relationship to the animals whose skins they collect, represent, paint, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I, I, I think very much that this interest in, in skins and the way that the, the preparing of skins and, and specimens informs the way we understand nature and in turn the way we understand ourselves and sort of technologies that we build, uh, that's sort of the way that uh, this topic worked. Um, but I'd say more like practically or in terms of the narrative of discovering this topic and figuring out that it worked really well, uh, I went to graduate school and assumed I was working with uh, Peter Galson and had planned to do a project about visualization and natural history and taxidermy. I'd basically planned to turn my undergraduate work into a thesis, uh, a dissertation, having had this like three-year hiatus as a financial consultant. Somehow it seemed like I was going to do this project about taxidermy, and it was going to be a book, and I already knew a lot. And then um, I just was kind of bored. It just didn't seem like enough, you know? It just didn't seem like enough to sustain the next however many years of, like, having this be, like, who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and... At the same time, I kind of started working on this new project about textiles and the um, technologies of textile use and reuse. Uh, simultaneously, I was taking a film class and had taken a number of filmmaking classes. was making a film about this topic, apparently unrelated to the history of science, kind of like a hobby that, you know, ended up getting a lot of sort of funding from another avenue. Had pitched that as my dissertation and was told by my wise, by Peter, my wise advisor, that this sounded like an interesting project, but it was not the history of science. Uh-huh. And so it just wasn't going to cut it. And I should have, you know, if I wanted to do this, I would need to choose another discipline. And so I was a little bit, you know, oh, and he said, and you have three weeks until, or four weeks until your prospectus is due. <laughs> 
so I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And I started thinking about clothing and textiles. And I had just done an interview with an old man, like a 90-year-old, who'd been one of the first people in the Army surplus recycling business. He had just been talking about these camouflage uniforms from Korea. And it was like I got it. Camouflage uniforms, modeling the strategies that uh, animals use on their skins, evolutionary biology, humans looking at nature to try to create technologies of self. One form of skin, animal skin, sort of technological skins, human skins, uh, representation, and then concealment and visibility as a form of self-representation. So it was really like a lightning moment. I was like, okay, I can do this. I went to the National Archives in D.C. I spent like whatever it was, 16 hours a day reading this archival stuff. And then, you know, a prospectus appeared. That's Um, fantastic. That's a great... yeah, it was really just that, like a moment. I remember it really well. That's um, great. And it's, I think, a lesson to anyone who is struggling with trying to come up with their own topic right now. For any graduate students or potential graduate students listening to us to follow your passions and pay attention to where your interests are taking you and not just do what you think you're supposed to be doing. And also I would say... Oh, just as a piece of my, I mean, not that I like to, not that I, sh- I should be giving out too much advice, but, <laughs> no, go on. but, um, but I also feel like one important thing that I think can be very helpful to at least a certain kind of person or sensibility mm-hmm. is to think about, well, what are the different things that I've been drawn to over the years? Even if I'm not really still interested in this project, what really interested me in that project and what really interested me in this other project and what's, how, what connects them? Mm-hmm. You know, and be, and because that's the space where maybe the really interesting project that's uniquely yours kind of lies. Absolutely. So. Lightning bolt. <laughs> so because this is what we're talking about is a book and not a dissertation, can you say a little bit about, before we actually get into the content, what was the process like for you of trans- transforming the dissertation into a book? Were there any uh, major transformations that happened from one to the other? Was it relatively smooth? All of the above? None of the above? How did it work for you? Um, well, I think that uh, for for better or worse, this prospectus, this lightning bolt perspective, um, that actually ended up being pretty similar in terms of laying out my book. And I think I sort of struggled after the prospectus, doing all the research and this and that. What was the argument going to look like? And it ended up kind of resolving, I think, around the way that I'd initially conceived it, in a sense. Um and of course, you know, one tends to finish one's dissertation and be really happy that you're done with school, hopefully forever, <laughs> right? Or, you know, that side of school, right? right, right. The kind of um, student school as opposed mm-hmm. to the adult teacher school. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, you know, I felt proud of myself for finishing this and especially once it was like bound in the green, you know, binding with the gold stuff on the back. Um, but I didn't necessarily feel like it was done somehow. Um, but I was, I guess I was very lucky to sort of take the, t- that even despite feeling that way, I just sent it, you know, I, I, uh, did find replace every time it says dissertation, change it to book, <laughs> right. um, you know, and, and I, and then I just sent it in, like I was encouraged to just send it in like, you know, a few months later, um, and actually was very lucky, I guess, to have my press basically be like, oh, this is really cool. Really, we really like this. Um, you know, kind of like do what you want and send it back. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wow, that's amazing. I'll send it back in six months. Um, and then, you know, it, this is the thing about revising a dissertation 
it like starts unraveling because your ideas are different now and you feel like your argument doesn't match up to what you think now and there's all these new chapters. Mm-hmm. So I didn't make the six-month deadline. I sort of was like rewriting every chapter. The whole thing was like a, a sweater that unraveled, right, to use a clothing metaphor. And mm-hmm. it was inside out and unraveled. Um, and then, you know, I guess a year Oh, it took, it took, there was a lot of unraveling and then a lot of trying to reconfigure. Um, and I had to end up, ended up pulling it aside for like nine months, um, just struggling. Mm -hmm. And then actually, ultimately, I went back to my dissertation many years. It was, it was, uh, two and a half years after I was done my dissertation and I had a book contract and, you know, things were very late. And then I sort of went back to my dissertation and thought, okay, well, you know what? This is, this was the moment when I made this argument and I'm going to go back to this and I'm going to base my book on this. I'm going to improve the writing. I'm going to make it a little more akin to how I actually understand my work now. Um, so it was not a smooth process in the way that I enacted it, but I think that the shift in the two kind of manuscripts themselves was pretty smooth and at least in the way it would appear, I think that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was wrenching <laughs> as it often is. Yeah. It was an identity thing, right? I came out of camouflage. <laughs> so this actually, this is great because coming out of camouflage, lets us get into camouflage and into hide and seek, um, and the content of what you're talking about in particular. Now let's sort of get right into it. The, um, one of the really fascinating things about the book, um, is the series of paratexts that you give us. And so there's this wonderful preface that opens, um, with a pedagogical issue, um, image that you describe having shown to lots of audiences that may or may not be a sniper in the grass. I think this was a beautiful image and, um, in many ways of construing image uh, to open the book. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a lovely sort of thematic that runs all the way through. For listeners who may not have had a chance to see the image, uh, read the book, can you describe um, that image and sort of talk a little bit about why it's significant for you for the book? Sure. It's always a real, a real challenge to describe an image and its central problematic <laughs> while being unable to show the image, but perhaps true to the, true to the mission of the of the problematic itself. So this is a photograph which, um, in some way, like, like Carl is mentioning, uh, in some ways not, not just motivates the book or the problematics of the book, but just sort of provided for me even this interesting window into what actually seemed at stake. It's basically a photograph made in 1916 by the British War Office. It's a photograph which was intended to basically teach soldiers, right, soldiers, soldiers that were sort of needed to learn how to, how to conceal themselves in a kind of, in this case, a natural environment from, from, enemy, uh, from enemy observation. So it's a photograph of the kind of ideal. How should you achieve concealment? Through, and this is a f- photograph that would have been distributed on paper, but also uh, glass lantern slides. It might have been shown in a, in a basic training class. It's a photograph that shows a kind of field, a grassy field. In the very, very, very background, you can see uh, some little, like, little huts and a fence, but very, 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 very far in the background. Basically, all you see is a field, lots of grass. You see this stick, which seems to be pointing somewhere in the grass. And the caption on the photograph is camouflage, colon, sniper in grass. 
And of course, the question is, right, as a viewer, I think this isn't just true as a viewer now, but one as the kind of imagined soldier viewing this in 1916, where is the sniper? And one looks and looks and looks, and not only can one not find the sniper hidden in the grass, um, which if, one doesn't know if the fact that one cannot find that sniper is because you're not yet skilled enough in actually even observing that sniper, let alone imitating it, or is it in fact that there is no sniper in that picture? Right. Um, and so this opens up a whole question about, in a certain sense, actually, what does it mean to hide? What does it mean to sort of create a representation of oneself in which one is absent? Uh, so I'd say, yeah, I suggest everyone, if you can track down the image, look at it, send me in your, uh, your ideas about where the sniper is, because I've been collecting people ideas for years now. <laughs> if you actually, if after the interview or after our discussion, if you'd like, if there's a, um, an online version of it anywhere and you'd like to send me the link, I can put the link up. Oh, sure. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, in the intro. Um, so the preface sort of sets out the goal of the book, um, in which you say you're, the book is going to look at the structuring principles of visual pedagogies and material practices of strategic concealment. And this actually extends between the first publication of The Origin of Species all the way down to the end of World War II. Now, as we get into the book, what's really lovely about this um, is how economical the book is. It really is. And, and as a reader, I really had the sense that every chapter is there for a reason. Every image is there for a reason. And the chapters um, sort of sequentially develop a major argument that you're presenting us with at the beginning of the book. And that argument is... Um, sort of at least related to um, this uh, progression that you show us um, among or from one to the other of three historically and conceptually linked, you say, species or structural formations of camouflage, static camouflage, serial camouflage, and dynamic camouflage. And the, the chapters after the introduction, or at least the first three step-by-step, -step, take us through these different formations of camouflage um, that are then brought together um, at the end in chapter four. Can you talk a little bit for listeners um, about this idea of, and I, and I know this is a very big question because essentially this is what the book is all about, um, but um, can you say a little bit sort of at a um, sort of more general level about um, the idea of these three formations of camouflage, static, serial, and dynamic. Sort of why is that important? Um, how should we understand that? Sure. Um, I would say that uh, one of the central ideas of the book is that even though, I would say, and even the time framing of the book, is that even though I think as most people would kind of come to see or already see, uh, even though ideas about hiding and deception in, in warfare and also in everyday life have kind of existed for, you know, as long as we can remember. Trojan horse, uh, march to Burnham Wood and Shakespeare. Um, and even though animals have been sort of have evolved, as we know, to be protectively concealed in nature, my argument and its kind of origin around that, that photograph that that we talked about, is basically that camouflage is in fact, surprisingly perhaps, something that emerges only in the late 19th century and only in relationship to the emergence of photographic surveillance of many different kinds. Uh, so that's really at the, at the central core of my argument and my book. 
And these structural formations then, or these species, are organized around three different modes of photographic surveillance. In other words, basically I argue that there are these three general kinds of sets of media practices, uh, ideas of self, of the environment, that, that organize themselves around different kinds of photographic devices. In the first instance, in the sort of realm of the static camouflage, you have these static photographs. You have photographers going out with evolutionary biologists to document in still photographs, you know, moths concealed against the bark. Whether you can actually see them or not is another question. You also have, as in the sniper photograph, you have these fo- you have an idea of a person who's trying to hide in a photograph. Or, you know, from a periscope or from, you know, whatever the kind of still image or the still moment that might be seen in an optical device in, in the late 19th century among natural historians, hunters, and then also uh, within, in warfare. In the second instance, what you see is you have serial camouflage, which has to do with a set of practices, and in this case, mostly in the realm of warfare and technology, that organize themselves around trying to conceal whoever the subject is from serial photographic surveillance. In other words, in World War I, you end up getting this kind of uh, surveillance from above. And that surveillance has a lot to do with monitoring change, monitoring kind of gradations of shape. So that would be uh, the serial camouflage. And then the dynamic camouflage, again, is organized in relation to this idea of what we might all understand now, a kind of dynamic, real-time, all-encompassing, almost like video surveillance. This idea that you could be being seen at any time from any position, um, from any direction as you move through space. Uh, And again, that is linked then to this idea of kind of cinematic photographic surveillance, uh, particularly as it was coming into being and being sort of understood through training films and technologies of war around World War II. So, yes, hopefully that. That's perfect. (laughs) That's great. Now, you you can sort of, listeners will already be able to tell that the book is attempting to do some really serious conceptual work here in laying out this history of um, camouflage and the practice of camouflage. As you worked through these ideas and developed this very coherent argument um, as a way to structure these very different kinds of materials that you are leading us through in this book, were there any particular thinkers... um, sort of scholars, thinkers, who particularly influenced uh, the way you were thinking about these these topics and the, these, the, um, as, especially as you were developing this idea of change between these three modes? Um, like, who well, you most know, inspired yeah. you? <laughs> well, no, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, um, I think that that's a, a good question. It actually connects, I think, in a weird, in an interesting way to your question about the dissertation to book process. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that in a way I have a sense now of who the thinkers were that I think really inspired me at a core level. Mm-hmm. I think when you're writing a dissertation, sometimes you don't trust yourself and you don't trust who you want to connect to, who really inspired you. You listen to a lot of other people. And it's in writing a book that you kind of, I think, come back to your true recognizing your true inspiration, so to speak. Um, I think on the one hand, I was really uh, influenced actually by some of the work of my advisor, um, who'd been, you know, Peter Gallison and Lorraine Dastin, actually, 
a lot of their work on um, mechanical objectivity, these sort of models of truth to nature, uh, the way in which sort of photographic practices and different kinds of representational technologies are connected to actually the way that we construct our understanding of nature. Um, and uh, so their their work on on these different modes of of seeing basically, and uh, of on how this how our modes of seeing create what we understand to be natural objects. I think that was definitely a real influence. Um, and then I think also uh, a kind of philosopher of technology, Gilbert Simondon, who wrote a book about the evolution of technological objects. This also was very. Um, Really, a very inspiring work that he that he did. I even struggled through the French, which was a was a challenge. Um, and that was a case where I think he deeply inspired me. But for whatever reason, um, other people didn't think he fit in the dissertation. So he's he's not he's not visible. I think in the book, but was definitely a real a real inspiration, um, sort of in terms of theoretical framing. And then a lot of the kind of uh, texts about. Um, Photographic theory, film studies, kinds of kinds of things, um, and then there, you know, there are also just some of the reading and knowledge I had of the history of biology. A lot of historians of biology that had, you know, written about evolutionary biology, relationships of form, function, and kind of structure. Great. Well, another um, particularly inspiring part of this book, at least for the reader, are the characters. Um, and, I, and I say that um, as you know, characters and as historical actors or historical actors as characters that you present us with in these chapters. And there are really wonderful character sketches of some of the major players in this story in each one of the chapters. The first one that immediately comes to mind is Abbot Thayer. Um, now, this is in chapter one. This chapter looks, as we've talked about, um, at static camouflage, right? And it's specifically concealment in relation to the idea of an instant, a moment, and the, of the instantaneous photograph. Um, now, this focuses on this fascinating character, Abbot Thayer. Can you introduce him a little bit for our listeners, sort of and just say a little bit about who he was um, before we sort of get into the, um, the rest of his relationship to camouflage? Absolutely. I always love to talk about Abbot Thayer. <laughs> He is a wonderful character. So Abbot Thayer was, um, alas, he's not with us anymore. Um, he was a trained kind of portrait and society painter, uh, part of this kind of Boston scene from the late 19th century, kind of of the era of, uh, well, sort of of William James's era and John Singer Sargent's era. And he was, you know, he was a really uh, very quirky but extremely and profoundly insightful man, I argue. Um, or I understand, as I understand him to be. And he got interested at a certain point in his career in the 1890s um, in photography. This was sort of a new thing for him. And then he got really fascinated by protective concealment in nature. I mean, he just became kind of, he was an obsessive man. Um, but he sort of stopped painting these large-scale society portraits of, uh, you know, Mrs. So-and-so and her fancy dress and started going out into nature, stuffing and posing animals that he hunted. He'd always been a hunter and a taxidermist. You know, he would kill these animals, he would stuff them, he would paint them, he would pose them, and started coming up with these theories about protective coloration in nature, arguing against perhaps our better judgment and many others that every single animal 
in the natural kingdom, except for humans, had evolved to be invisible. Uh, he came up with a couple laws of how and in what way they came to be invisible and argued that every single animal had evolved to be invisible, but only in relation to a specific moment. In other words, in relation to the specific moment in which they, if they weren't invisible, would be killed. Um, so photography became a key way that he went about making his proof, so to speak, uh, sending the photographs to Alfred Russell Wallace, to all of these sort of followers of Darwin um, all over England. I mean, really just he, he went at it. Um, then he started doing these large-scale paintings based on these photographic works, uh, started doing these amazing projects where he would collect dead feathers. And keep in mind, this is like way before cubism or... Um, and he's this like supposedly realist painter. He's collecting feathers from dead birds, and he's refiguring those into collages in which, uh, in which the bird is basically erased by its own feathers. He's creating a collage to represent the environment in which that bird lives. Um, really weird, weird, weird kind of work. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah I, won't, I won't tell the whole story, but it just gets better from there. <laughs> it does. And the um, for listeners, the, there are a series of really beautiful color plates in the back of the book and images sprinkled throughout this chapter of Thayer's work and really how strange but beautiful and extraordinarily um, evocative and weird it is. It included uh, photo montage, feather painting, and also this um, series of sort of ways of using stencils. Totally oddly, right? I mean, this was actually really, really surprising. Um, stencils to see most clearly what's there, right? As a way of sort of, you look through this, these stencils of ducks or other kinds of animals, insects, as a way to actually see them in um, these images that he's giving us. I mean, sort of, what was it like working with these stencils, actually? Did you have access to a number of these sort of physical objects when you were writing the book? They look fascinating. Yeah, so I would, um, a lot of people ask me about these stencils, and sometimes they even laugh at the stencils. And one of the things I, I, I think deeply is that these stencils are not to be laughed at. Mm -hmm. uh, he's creating these stencils, and what he's kind of doing is he'll, he'll hold them up against an environment, right, against a background or a photograph, and say, this is what that animal would look like if it were there and properly concealed, which sounds kind of stupid. I mean, it doesn't sound stupid to me, but it may seem kind of arbitrary and strange. Um, but what he's, he's making that case, right, which is about learning how to be a kind of skeptical and reasonable viewer, right? He's teaching you how to look skeptically at the world, and he's also teaching you how to think about perhaps what might be one's own need to position oneself from the perspective of an animal or a human who needed to hide. Um, what would be one way to think about hiding in an environment? Well, make a stencil of oneself and hold it up against a picture of that environment. So I, I was very beguiled by these stencils uh, and very fascinated by them. And I did, you know, I was able to go and look at these stencils in person, like I tracked some of them down. Um, I found some of the stencils and cutouts that he had made out of wallpaper and sent actually to Alfred Russell Wallace. I located those in sort of a box um, in at the at Oxford uh, at the kind of Alfred Russell Wallace Library. So that was really kind of inspiring and, and interesting. And then I also actually I did an art project in two thousand eight um, 
which actually I'm, I'm showing in a gallery next month. But what uh, I basically, I started making the stencils myself, right? So I started copying his stencils um, and making my own stencils and kind of using them to figure out in a way, get into his mindset and sort of make my own literally kind of channel hit channel his own thought process and, and sort of get into his head, make the stencils, put them up against environments. Um, and, uh, and I think that was a really interesting way in retrospect in which I was interacting with those stencils. Uh, like I was actually making my own art using his stencils, which I think really got me into a place where I could actually articulate what his story uh, actually did. What 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 was the central thing about his story that fit within my story? The, the sort of stenciling and identity and the relationship between um, humans or creatures and the environment is such an interesting theme. I mean, I just watched um, Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams and also looking at recent stories about these other cave paintings um, of from much earlier that were just discovered in Spain. It seems like I, which featured for listeners who haven't um, seen these uh, hands, sort of hands being used as stencils, and then you blow the pigment around it to create an image of a hand on the cave. It really seems like, just kind of as a footnote, some sort of more focused study on stenciling um, would be really fascinating, too. I mean, that itself, uh, like many of, of these aspects of these chapters, would make its own, I think, fascinating study. Um, so, okay, so uh, this, you're bringing up your own, um, work with, uh, Thayer's, um, idea of stencils and his stenciling actually leads me to another question I wanted to ask you. You, at various points in the book, you actually present images of your own work as an artist. Um, and I think there's one at the beginning and there's at least one at the end. Um, I'm thinking of the image of the stack of newspapers with plants growing out of it and also the image at the beginning, um, a couple blind or something having to do with blind? Yeah, I think it's called blind. Okay, blind. Can you? Th- this is fascinating, and this is incredibly inspiring um, I, to me as a reader, um, and I think to a lot of readers of this book, and I think probably to a lot of listeners. Can you say a little bit about how your own, how you've kind of um, created a relationship between your own work as an artist um, and the work that you're looking at in, for the purpose of this book? Because clearly you're presenting this as an organic whole um, in the book uh, for the reader. Yeah. Um, well, I would, I would add just because you see you know, this idea of the organic whole, what is, is so nice. Actually, the cover of the book, the kind of wraparound cover is mm-hmm. actually a... Um, it's also my own kind of oh, art, wow. artwork. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a crop in a way, a large crop of the photograph, the frontispiece, which is called Blind. So, Wonderful. I actually think, I mean, I think your, your question um, gets, a, I think, what I was saying a little bit in that, like, how I got to the history of science, which is that kind of all along, I think, it's always been my own acts of kind of looking and making um, my non, not non-analytic, but non-text-based engagement with the world of kind of science that has driven in many different ways my kind of writing and research agenda. So that's been a kind of, I think that's been true in almost every major research project I've done, you know, going back to whenever. Um, in terms of this camouflage book and project, I did start with these stencils, like, pretty pretty early on, um, and started doing a bunch of other artwork that was actually connected to each of these three sections. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I eventually made like an experimental film about camouflage, uh, did a whole performance art project on an island in Boston Harbor in 2008 with an architect and an environmental historian. And I, I think that in a way, I mean, this was a struggle because it certainly doing these art projects wasn't exactly what was expected of me. But I think, you know, especially as I was trying to get to the point where my dissertation could become the book, it was through kind of channeling. I mean, I would almost call it like channeling um, or re-articulating what I was doing in this more kind of like embodied material form, like through my through myself, that I was able to really feel not exactly make my argument, but actually feel like my argument was true. That somehow it gave me a lot of, gave me a much stronger sense that that I really knew what I was talking about because I kind of like felt it and had built it. Um, And so, and actually initially, you know, you mentioned this color signature in the book, which is the art of disappearance, which is kind of walks you through Abbott Thayer's world of stencils and imagination originally the color the color signature was actually going to be a uh, documentation of, of uh, a series of my own art projects um, and that ended up seeming and I think it was the right the right choice I ended up kind of thinking it was a little too conceptually uh, a little too conceptual mm-hmm. um, and so it ended up you know not being not being in the book per se but I, I really think a number of these projects actually just really helped me kind of see my whole argument through a kind of non-historical, non-text-based lens. Uh, and that, that I think without doing that, at least for me and my temperament or my inclina- sort of academic inclinations, it just wouldn't have worked without that. Mm-hmm. Great. And, there's, and that would be a wonderful thing. I mean, there are many books to write, right? And so hopefully we'll, we'll see so that they, in another so they, fourth they tell me. So they tell me. I'm actually now turning a film that I made basically at the very moment that I finished, the same week I finished my dissertation, I'm turning that into a book. It's my next book. So. Oh, fantastic. Oh, and, and I'll ask you about that later, actually. I want to know okay. more about that. Um, so as we move from Thayer, and there, there's a ton of other stuff we could talk about with Thayer, but I'll move us on, including his um, repurposing of William James' overcoat, which I'll pay or I'll oh, um, make. You got to love it. You got to love it. You got you got You guys all have to hear what happens to William James' overcoat. That's right. Well, do you want to talk about that or should we leave that as a surprise for I think it should be a surprise okay okay so listeners buy the book read the book or read the book in some way and learn about William James overcoat and what that has to do with the story but we move from that to um, the next chapter which looks at the emergence of serial camouflage right and looks in particular at the technology of netting as it emerges and is developed in this history of cat, um, of uh, camouflage. Now, you've briefly mentioned um, at the beginning of our conversation the importance of the development of aerial re- reconnaissance technology to shaping what happens in this development of serial or the serial species or serial structure of the history of camouflage. Can you say a little bit about that and, and how that specifically became so important to the story? Yeah, so I, as... As, uh, as you mentioned, I organized my discussion of the emergence of camouflage in World War II uh, around the emergence of what was at the time simply called the material, which became this kind of, um, well, after camouflage as a word was coined and as a whole kind of study within military uh, instruction, but, you know, right, right after it came into being around 1915, 
this material emerged. And this material, unlike, I think, what a lot of us might think about as camouflage, it wasn't like a specific object. It wasn't wasn't like a cam- like a, a disruptively cubist style painted tank. It wasn't a specific uniform. It wasn't really a thing. It was, and I think we can all picture in our heads camouflage netting now. Um, it was kind of this like multi-purpose, multi-pronged fabric. I mean, it was like this this uh, this medium that that unlike a, a giant painted tank, you could kind of pick up and carry with you. As you moved from one environment to another, you could decorate it with the leaves, the specific brush, the specific kinds of kinds of th- environments you needed to blend into, and you could just lay it over your world. You could lay it over your body to hide. You could layer layer it over the trenches. You could layer it over the kinds of paths that you were taking uh, around the around the trenches to get your troops from point A to point B. Um, you could layer it over a whole landscape and turn what was in fact a munitions factory into like a grassy knoll. Um, and so for me, this is a really interesting way to kind of get into the story of camouflage uh, because unlike it sort of just looking at a specific object, um, you know, I'm looking at, at camouflage really is a set of practices, a set of ways for a human to basically use this interesting form of technology that allows them to shape, you know, to shape these nets, to shape this material, to be precisely what can kind of put them in a position where through technology they're blending into nature. And again, as we, we, we didn't specifically talk about the importance of interactivity when we talked about Thayer, but that is very important in the chapter in terms of how Thayer earlier on um, in the book was presenting his work and experimenting. The importance of interactivity also is really striking um, in this discussion. I mean, you, you make very clear that these nets are sort of, as you say, military mixed media collages or kind of site-specific installations, and that's one of the most interesting and striking things about these nets and this sort of netting um, as camouflage is how specifically tied to each particular instance of or context of its use these nets were. I mean, they weren't just sort of ready-made things that you you take it and you drop it and that's done, right? Um, And so it's very interesting in terms of sort of thinking about this in that context. Now, one of the really striking things for me um, in reading this book, you have or reading this chapter, you have photographs of um, some people who are actually involved in producing these nets, and a couple of them in particular stand out. This is, um, for listeners who want to sort of look at this, these are photos on page uh, 112. One of them is a photo of Chinese workers who are in the process of making netting, and you also have sort of female workers in the process of making netting. Um, can, Can you sort of say a little bit, is there anything more to say about these Chinese workers or these sort of female workers who are in the process of making these nettings? Because it seemed like this gets, sort of allows us to get into um, elements of this story that might have something to do with sort of class or race or gender phenomena as they're shaping this story of netting. So is there a larger story there, or is this just something that remains for later work at another time? Well, um, there's definitely a larger story there, I would say, in, in two senses. Um, I think probably neither of which are fully fleshed out in, in the book. Um, and the first, I'll kind of talk about the sort of uh, women and uh, gender class thing second. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I think in the first instance, one of the things that interested me very much in, you know, in these sort of uh, basically, they're, they're all French refugee women whose husbands had sort of gone off to get killed in the trenches and whose land had been invaded and who were refugees kind of then brought in to work for the American Camouflage Corps and the, the sort of British Royal Engineers painting and literally dressing the nets. Um, the Chinese workers were uh, Asian workers. They, they're a mystery because I had a really hard time figuring out like who they were, how they got there, honestly. But, you know, they're painting. They're doing all this painting of nets and Hessian and Jew. So what interested me is kind of looking at these two groups as nodes in what seemed to me this like very large, almost like actor network theory type structure where you had them who had the people at the center you know who were developing the 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 nets um you had the soldiers in the field who are like dressing the nets to look like the environment they're in so i was very interested in the way in which this netting both as a form and also as a kind of site specific entity was built by so many hands and was sort of built up by so many kinds of people each of whom, um, each of these groups having, and each of these individuals having kind of agency and an active role in shaping this technology. Uh, to, to the, the other question that um, the workers and their larger stories, um, I was really interested in the story of the men that are painting, mm-hmm. that we can let we can call them Chinese men, but honestly, I couldn't even ever figure out like what their specific ethnicity was, mm-hmm. um, how they'd gotten there, um, and that was something that I'd be fascinated by. But I was unable to kind of gather enough about the history of Asian immigrants in France during that period to to figure it out. Uh, the women are like really fascinating too. Um, the thing that most interested me about the the, the the sort of role of those women is to what extent they were actually drawing on a lot of skills that they had in their kind of civilian life, i.e. things like knitting, cutting, sewing. They were really mobilizing all of these skills which they had. Uh, some of them had worked a lot in kind of more like fishing communities, so even like constructing netting. They were really taking all of these traditionally coded female practices and craft skills and bringing them into this space. So that's that was something that really interested me, I, 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 I would say. That's fascinating. And I think this is a case of one of many, many, many cases in the book where there's this is such a rich story, and the material that you're giving us in this book is so rich. There's potential to um, sort of butt off probably hundreds of other <laughs> dissertations and books from this study. So um, it's it's really that rich. So as we sort of move through from netting um, to the next phase of the story, um, this is a chapter called How Not to Be Seen, and this looks at dynamic camouflage as strategic concealment and brings us into um, a range of sources of um, sort of film sources that are just completely fascinating. And for listeners, I really recommend when you read this chapter to have YouTube handy so that you can look up some of these films. Um, just totally fascinating. Um, so this is a story about 
how um, this concealment and this kind of camouflage, as you tell us, was affected in response to real-time filmic surveillance, where the position of the camera and their surveillor and their movement is unknown. And so this is a very different um, circumstance of uh, the development of camouflage, but one which um, is very is clearly very organically um, related to the rest of the story. Now, this chapter opens with a Monty Python skit that I think will be familiar to many of our listeners. Um, can you sort of uh, start us off here in this uh, section for this section of this book by saying a little bit about this Monty Python skit and sort of how it leads us into the larger story that you're telling with this chapter? Sure, absolutely. Um, I would begin by saying that uh, hopefully if you, the listeners, have had a chance to view that initial camouflage sniper in the grass photograph, I, I would say that this How Not to Be Seen skit, um, which I'll describe really briefly so I don't ruin the surprise, um, <laughs> is kind of like bringing the problem in that photograph into a more dynamic and up-to-date space, right? Mm-hmm. So in that, the How Not to Be Seen Monty Python skit produced in 1971, I, I think, um, it's a kind of a Vietnam-era spoof or mock of a World War II training film, of which there were many. Uh, and the kind of training film that they're making fun of is a, a sort of training film in how, how to do camouflage. How, how does a soldier learn to hide? How does a civilian learn to hide from the Nazis, etc.? So what you end up with, uh, well, in this photo, there are 40 men. None of them can be seen. In this film, we will show you how not to be seen. So that, that's how the, the, the skit opens. Um, not, that I've, not that I've watched it too many times or anything. <laughs> of course not. But then you end up seeing all of these different scenes of, uh, of what seemed to be nobody. Uh, and then the, the narrator, who's John Cleese, asks everybody to stand up um, And for various reasons, ultimately, each subject, each kind of subject of the film, right, each subject that we're seeing as the film's viewers, reveals himself stupidly. Um, And, uh, you know, that's kind of, the film sets this up, and since it's Monty Python, it's, like, totally hilarious. Um, But, you know, ultimately, I won't tell you how the skit ends, because that's the funniest part, but ultimately, in fact, it's, it's like a lot of Monty Python. I mean, it's, it's hilarious partially because it taps into something that's, like, totally not hilarious, you know, like Hitler or whatever it is. Like, the, the, the punchline is, is serious. And in this case, it's, it, it's also very serious. I mean, it's a skit produced during one war about the kind of horrible features of, of of being blown up because you don't hide sufficiently from the from the ways in which you're being observed, whether it's kind of cinematic or otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that's the uh, that's the skit. Go watch it. That's right. That's right. And another thing, um, that even if you don't read the book, <laughs> but read the book. I'm going to yeah, say no, read, the, read book. the book. Yeah. Um, so this uh, this skit and this sort of parody of military preparedness films really leads us into this chapter where you give us um, a, a much broader context of what actual um, films of this type are being developed in this period and how that this how this is helping develop another sort of realm or species of camouflage and the understanding of camouflage. Now, one of the most interesting figures that emerges out of this story is Len Lai. 
um, who is a filmmaker and artist that, um, or who develops this film that you lead us through, Kill or Be Killed. Um, and he develops this in 1943, um, along with a lot of, um, very other really fascinating filmic, um, products, um, that speak to this larger theme of camouflage and hiding and camouflage consciousness in this chapter. Can you briefly talk about Len Lai, sort of introduce him for our listeners and say a little bit about, um, this film, Kill or Be Killed, in this context? Sure, absolutely. So uh, Len Lai was a, a really amazing uh, artist whose, whose career spanned from about the late 1920s until the, the late 70s. He, he began as a very seminal and important experimental animation artist. He was from New Zealand. He moved to London in the 30s, started making these really kind of interesting animation that was completely, it was non-figurative, uh, very much about this kind of hands-on engagement with film, which like with like black and white film itself, kind of hiding it through through paint, through scratching, through different techniques, hiding the subject of films. Uh, and this was called direct animation, and it became a very um, influential direction for experimental cinema and animation. He during World War II, he was kind of enlisted. Uh, not necessarily actively. Well, almost actively. He began to work for John Grierson and for this kind of whole school of British filmmakers and documentarians who were creating a kind of new form of documentary, right? In fact, what would seem to be in quite distinct opposition to the kind of experimental animation art that Len Lai was doing. But he ended up kind of getting involved with this group and producing and directing uh, actually a number of military training films, right, for the Ministry of Information between about 1941 and 1943. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of these films which forms the sort of center of, of my chapter. It's this film, Killer Be Killed. Uh, and, um, you know, I can... The, the, that, the chapter kind of talks about how his film works and also how it differs and marks a real shift, um, you know, from this kind of older style of thinking about pedagogy, film, military training, uh, and how this could only really happen, this sort of sea change through the lens of camouflage. Um, I should just say that later on, because you asked about Len Lai, after the war he moves to New York and becomes a kinetic artist and makes giant moving sculptures. So that, that becomes what he does post-war. Post He's completely That's fascinating. Not. He's totally fascinating. And I won't ask you to describe this film because I'll, so I'll just sort of um, let listeners know, we'll let you already have let listeners know um, that the film includes a very detailed um, working through of this film and why it's important and sort of what's happening here and how this is related to um, the emergence of a camouflage consciousness in modern warfare. And so I'll just sort of um, gesture at that and um, mention that that's just, I think, a very insightful part of this chapter and really, really fascinating. And also it links to, as you show us, um, links from this to the Later development of uh, first-person shooter ethos in films like Predator and um, war-related games and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of connection here as we move into the end of the book between this story that you're telling us that lasts from the late 19th century all the way to the kinds of phenomena that we're seeing now and that we might see in the future. 
in terms of hiding and effacement. Now, the, the final chapter of the work brings the first three together and looks at the convergence of static, serial, and dynamic modes of camouflage in the service of what you are calling here the chameleonic impulse. Um, now, since this does seem to be a pretty significant contribution um, of this book, can you say a little bit about this chameleonic impulse? What is it, and sort of why is it important to you in terms of the larger um, work that this book is doing? Sure. So, uh, actually, your your previous comment, your sort of reflection on, let's say, first-person shooter games, right, and the way in which uh, I think that even though the focus is between about 1859 and 1945, the way in which it kind of, my argument is aiming in a way to anticipate the more contemporary moment we live in. Right. Um, so, like this sort of world we live in right now, the technologies that we now are kind of shaping or that are shaping us, uh, this sort of military entertainment, you know, complex, to quote Tim Lenoir, uh, that we are sort of struggling to, uh, to interact with or to hide from or whatever. So I'd say what drives the deve- my idea of the chameleonic impulse is really trying to find the thread through uh, the story. I mean, how, what, what's the th- thread through these different s- species and structural formations of camouflage? What's really, I mean, what's it really at stake and where have those formations that have developed historically, where does that drive come from and where have they gotten? You know, where, where really, where have they gotten us? Um, and what, what I do in that chapter is to kind of look at this idea that, that goes through the whole book, but also even goes through our, in some ways, perhaps what it means to be human or to be a, a human needing to survive in the world, this kind of drive to, to disappear or to be hidden, right? To be just totally hidden in one's environment, to be an invisible man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, this, this emerges in all sorts of ways. Uh, how do we kind of, how could we go about our lives and be completely effaced as we move? How could we be like a chameleon? Right. Uh, even though chameleons actually don't change uh, to hide in their environment as it as it happens. Um, how can we be like chameleons? And I think the question of our becoming chameleons is like such a such a key feature in a lot of in, in a lot of films um, that we might see. But also in the way that the military now is trying to develop cutting edge modern technologies. You know, the issue is how can we hide? How can we hide completely? How can we hide our own bodies as we as soldiers move through space? How can we completely hide uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the drones or the this or the that? How can we hide these objects sort of seamlessly so that they're kind of constantly moving through through space? And what, what I contend is that this is like a huge issue, basically. This is a huge issue, and especially as this issue has has emerged even more fully in the late 20 the late 20th and early 21st century that it's inextricably bound up with photography photographic surveillance and this drive to hide within it right. Thank you. And that chapter also includes a really interesting discussion of um, natural history, of chameleons, of octopus, of um, animals that um, I think really gives another dimension to the story. 
So Hannah, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. We've taken a lot of your time. Um, there's so much in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to cover that you want to um, mention for listeners who might be, who might not have had a chance to read the book yet, or that you want to make sure that you get out there? Um, well, it's been wonderful to chat. I've really enjoyed it. One thing I'd mention just offhandedly is that one of the, um, really important features of the book is, is, uh, the illustrations that I'm really building my argument through a kind of analysis and integration of, it must be something like 60 or 70 black and white illustrations and then these 16 color illustrations. So I would, um, I would just really encourage people, uh, to look at the book so that they can look at these images are really important. Um, and definitely do shape, shape the argument in different ways. So absolutely. And, and so you briefly, um, earlier mentioned a project that you're working on right now. So what's inspiring you right now? Um, and sort of what are you working on? What's next for you? Well, in addition to sort of having all of these pieces of the camouflage story that I couldn't get into the book that I'm wanting to write up as articles, et cetera, et cetera, which who knows if that'll happen. I'm working on a new book project, which is called Shoddy. Um, and it's, it's looking at textile recycling and the reuse of uh, materials, focusing on, on textiles starting in the early 19th century, going through the present. Um, just looking at the history of, of the reuse of objects and, and, and actually specifically these kind of material textile skin type objects, right? Looking at clothing, the, the development and redevelopment um, of clothes, their reuse, they're kind of shredding up and turning into new things. Uh, and it's actually based on, I think, I think I mentioned before that I'd made a film about textile recycling that I was working on and wasn't able to turn into my dissertation. Mm-hmm. So now that I'm a historian of, well, I'm in STS, so I can do a history of technology project. I'm sort of going back to that and turning that into a book. That sounds fascinating. Well, let it, let me know when that's out also. So I'll be back in touch and we'll talk Next about week. that one. <laughs> we'll give you at least a month. We'll give you at least a month to work on that. But Hannah, thank you so much. Um, it's oh. been a so, total pleasure to talk with you. The book is absolutely fascinating and it's been a pleasure talking with you about it. Yeah, it's been great, great for me as well. Thanks so much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.